Parshas Chayei Sarah is the fifth portion, the fifth parsha in the Torah. It's got 105 verses over two plus chapters. It does have the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, which comprises 67 verses. And we begin right after the final event of last week's parsha, Parshas Vayera, which was, of course, the binding of Isaac. Isaac was brought up to the mountain with his father, who had full intention of actually offering him as a sacrifice for God. And ultimately, at the last second, the Almighty says, okay, no, 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 we're not going to do this. You prove that you're totally loyal to me, but don't even touch, don't even injure in any way your son, Isaac. This which partial begins with the death of Sarah. Sarah dies, she's 127 years old, and Abraham begins to eulogize and bewail her. And Rashi tells us that these two events are juxtaposed because the reason why Sarah dies is because she finds out about the episode of the binding of Isaac. Abraham did not tell her what was happening. He didn't tell her that God had commanded him to take her son, their son, and bring him to a mountain and slaughter him. And when she found out, she died. She dropped dead. She was she was shocked by it, and she couldn't handle it, and she passed away at 127. And Abraham is now eulogizing and crying over his wife, Sarah, who passed away. Now, it's interesting. The Torah tells us that Abraham mourned. He bereaved the death of his wife, while in the Talmud, in the Jewish philosophical sources, we have all kinds of explanations for why bad things happen. And it seems that maybe if anyone could have seen godly goodness, or at least the fact that the Almighty has calculations for everything that happens, if anyone could have seen that thread, that angle in the death of Sarah, it would be Abraham. Abraham, of course, is the intellectual titan. He's the consummate believer. He's the one who brings the idea of one God who's controlling everything into the world. He would surely be capable of understanding that the death of his wife is the will of God. Yet the Torah tells us that Abraham eulogized her and he bewailed her. He cried over her. And this is despite the fact that Sarah is not a young woman. It doesn't seem like what we would consider to be a tragedy. She's 127 years old. Nonetheless, Abraham cries, Abraham mourns, Abraham eulogizes. And I think the lesson for us is that amid the pain of bereavement, even someone like Abraham, who is certainly capable of a theological, philosophical, intellectual understanding of there's a reason why things happen. Still, he eulogizes, he cries. That's the appropriate response at this time. We'll leave the philosophical questioning and pondering over why God does what he does for other times after the death, bereavement, mourning is appropriate. Now, Sarah dies because she finds out regarding the binding of Isaac. She was shocked. That's the simple understanding that the person who came and broke the news to her, instead of prefacing and saying that, don't worry, Isaac is okay, he's alive, 
nothing happened to him. Instead, it was presented as Abraham tried to kill Isaac before the person had time to inform her that don't worry, Isaac is still okay. She dropped dead. Maybe the lesson for us from that is the importance of breaking bad news slowly to not risk a further fallout. My grandfather says something very interesting. He says that maybe there's a different way of interpreting what happens. Rashi, after all, tells us that Sarah's death was linked to the binding of Isaac. She found out about it and she passed away. And my grandfather pointed out that at the Mount Sinai experience, of course, we're going to read that only in the book of Exodus, but at the Mount Sinai experience, an entire nation composed of millions of people were all elevated to the level of prophecy at the foot of the mountain. Even though these are people that just a few months earlier were slaves in Egypt, once they come to the foot of the mountain, they're temporarily catapulted to a level of prophecy. And the Talmud tells us that the people couldn't bear it. Their bodies were not ready to absorb such a godly experience, and therefore they died. And my grandfather wants to suggest an interesting idea, that maybe it wasn't that like Sarah, she got all nervous about the near-death experience of Isaac, maybe there's a different way of understanding what happened here. That maybe she was so, she had such a spiritual rush of the ecstasy, of of this idea that God told Abraham, I want you to make the ultimate sacrifice. She was consumed by the spiritual meaning of of this act of, of total sacrifice, that that kind of paralleled the prophetic experience at Sinai, and therefore she too passed away. So Abraham, now she has, he has to deal with, with Sarah, and he rose up from amongst the presence of his dead, and he spoke to the children of Ches, of Heth, saying, I'm an alien and a resident amongst you, grant me an estate for a burial site with you, that I may bury my dead before me. So Abraham has a problem. His wife passed away, and he has to procure a burial spot for her. So there's a few things to point out. First of all, in verse 3, we see Abraham rose from the presence of his dead. There's maybe a lesson here too. Abraham, of course, he's crying, he's mourning, he's eulogizing Sarah, and now he has to negotiate to try to find a burial spot for her. So he's the mourner, and the rest of the people there, well, they're not mourners. And therefore, he's in a different kind of realm. He's in a different mode. He's mourning. They're not. What does he do? He rose up from the presence of his dead. He kind of cleaned his face. He prepared himself to make other people not necessarily see his pain on his face so readily, so apparent. Maybe the lesson for us is that, you know, even as a mourner, we're responsible to make other people feel comfortable. So Abram asked those people, I want to have a burial spot in this place, in this location. And of course, Abraham, he's a he's a celebrity. He's a great, he's very wealthy. He's a great theologian. He commands the respect of all. He's legendary in his acts of kindness. So they say to him, whatever you want, no one's going to stop you. Tell us where you want. Tell us which, which burial spot you want, you want for Sarah. 
and no one will deny you that location. So Abraham says, okay, if so, if you're going to listen to me, let's speak to Ephron, the son of Tsohar, and he has a cave in one of his fields. Let me have this cave. I'll pay for it full price, and I'll use it as a burial spot for Sarah. Now, this cave, ultimately, Abraham was able to buy it, as we'll see in the story. But Sarah is not the first person to have been buried there. In fact, when all is said and done, there's going to be four couples that are going to be buried there. Adam and Eve, they, of course, preceded Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and his wife, Leah. At the time, Abraham had already discovered this, Adam and Eve were already buried in this cave. And in fact, the Zohar, the Kabbalistic sources tell us that this location is one of the entrances of the Garden of Eden. In fact, we get a very dramatic backstory uh, to how Adam found this cave and how he chose to bury Eve there. After Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they went all over the world searching to try to find a way back in. And they came across this cave in the land of Israel. And they smelled it, that it smelled exactly like it smelled in the Garden of Eden. So they tried to go into it and find the entrance. And as they were digging, a heavenly voice told them, okay, you can't go any any further. And therefore, uh, when Eve died, Adam buried her there. And afterwards, when Adam died, he too was buried there by his children. Abraham, he knew that this place was special. He knew exactly who was buried there. And therefore, he wanted specifically this location to be a burial spot. He wanted to buy it so no one will have any contentions with his acquisition of the land. Incidentally, today, you could still go to this cave in the city of Hebron. And in fact, a little vignette, this site was renovated by King Herod in the first century before the Common Era. Until this day, there's a massive building built by Herod for a location of prayer, and it's still used daily by Jews and Muslims, making it the oldest building in the world that is still used and fulfills its original function. This is the spot that Abraham wants to buy, and the owner is a guy named Ephron. And Ephron is promoted he is sitting in the midst of the children of Ches, and he responds to Abraham, you want my field, you're such a special person, don't don't pay me for it, I'm going to give it to you, I'm gonna, not only am I going to give you the cave, I'm going to give you the field around it, it's all yours, you don't need to pay me for it, go ahead and bury your dead. So Abraham responds in appreciation, and he says, no, 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 but I'm not going to take it for free. You have to listen to me very carefully. I want to pay what it costs. I'm going to pay for the field. I'm going to pay for the cave. Let me pay it with full price so that I may bury my dead. And Ephraim responds, okay, if you insist, 
I'm going to charge you 400 silver coins. No big deal between me and you. Go ahead and bury your dead. Now, it's interesting. The Talmud makes a calculation of how much silver this is. It turns out it's an exorbitant amount. Uh, he said he starts off, uh, Ephron does, he starts off initially by telling Abraham, oh, it's all yours. Take the cave. Take the field. It's all for you for free. And ultimately, when push came to shove, Ephron was a big talker, but he didn't actually deliver the goods. And it's kind of the exact opposite of Abraham. Last In last week's Parsha, we saw how Abraham, he spoke very little, but he did a lot. Here, Ephron spoke a lot, but didn't actually walk the walk. After Ephron makes his exorbitant request, Abraham accedes, he listens to Ephron, he gives him exactly what he wants, 400 silver coins, and the transaction was done. There was a huge crowd to witness it. Everyone saw how Abraham rightfully purchased this cave and this field, and he buried Sarah in that burial spot. Now, there's a very interesting point that we find in the commentaries. As we mentioned over the past couple of weeks, the Mishnah tells us that Abraham was given 10 tests, 10 nisyonot, 10 challenges by God, and he triumphed in all of them. Over the course of Abraham's life, there were 10 distinct times where God said, okay, I'm going to make a test for you. Will you succeed? Will you fail? Is in your hands. And in each one of those 10, Abraham was triumphant. And every time Abraham completed one task, he kind of leveled up. He went to the next level, to a more difficult test. Thus, the earlier tests are easier than the later tests. What was the tenth and final test? So the Mishnah doesn't tell us, doesn't tell us exactly what the delineation of the tests are. And therefore, all the commentaries offer somewhat slightly different accounts of what was the first test, second test, third test. But almost everyone agrees that the tenth and most difficult test that Abraham had to face in his life was the test of the binding of Isaac. After all, God tells him, Go sacrifice your own son, the son that I told you really will be your heir. That same son, go sacrifice him. Can we think of a more difficult test? Most likely not. However, Rabbeinu Yonah, one of the great commentaries on the Mishnah on Perkei Avos, tells us that no, the test of the binding of Isaac was not the tenth and most difficult of the tests. It was the ninth. What was the most difficult test, what could possibly be more challenging to Abraham, a more difficult test to overcome than the binding of Isaac episode where he's told to sacrifice his son? The burial of Sarah. Abraham, after all, was told multiple times by God, walk the length of the land, walk the width of the land, it's all yours. And his wife dies, and he doesn't have a place to bury her. He had to buy, for a tremendous sum, he had to buy the cave and the field from Ephron. Abraham could very much have questioned God and said, I don't get it. God promises all these amazing things to me. And 
even the most minimal requirements to actually have a small parcel of land to bury my wife, I have to go into a whole prolonged negotiations. But Abraham didn't do that. His He was committed to God. His fear of God was complete. His faith was perfect. He didn't question God even in this test. That's what Rabbi Yonah says. And it's very surprising because while it's difficult, you would imagine for someone who's gone through so much like Abraham has, it's difficult for him to have to deal with another headache of buying a place to bury his wife, especially when God promised the whole land is his. But how does he, how does Rabbi Yonah suggest that it's even more difficult than sacrificing his son. It's even more challenging than that. Yes, it's difficult not to question God in such an episode. Why does God not give me an easier way to bury my wife? But is it really harder than the Akedas Yitzchak, than the binding of Isaac? So it's an interesting question. Maybe there's different answers, but certainly one answer is that to reach the mountaintop, to reach the peak, is very hard. But maybe even harder than reaching on the, reaching the peak is staying on the peak. To achieve greatness is very difficult. To maintain greatness, that's even more difficult. Just as an example that maybe we can relate to. People that go on diets, you know, they lose weight, hopefully. And losing weight, it's very difficult. But what's even more difficult then losing weight, once you lost the weight, to keep it off. And it doesn't make really sense. After all, if you're losing weight, you have to consume less than what you're expending in, with regards to calories. Whereas to just stay the same, the, the, to the same body weight the way you are, it's just, it's easier because you're consuming and you're expending the same amount. Why is it more difficult to keep it off than it is to lose it. And maybe the answer is, maybe the several answers, like we said, but to, to initially achieve something, you have to focus. You gotta make an effort. But to keep it off, to maintain it, it means to never lose the vigilance that brought you there. On a similar vein, you, you did it. You accomplished it. You accomplished your goal. You're at the finish line. You're entitled. You've done your part. Your life should be seamless. Abraham, he overcame the most difficult test we could possibly imagine. And he won. He was successful. Maybe now he gets another test. Even after I accomplished the most difficult test, I have another test? Really? I don't deserve it. Maybe there's a feeling of entitlement. Maybe there's a feeling that... I, I can't maintain this for so long. I, I worked so hard to get here and I just, I don't have it in me. Yet Abraham does not question God. And indeed, in the eyes of Rabbi Yonah, this is a more difficult test than the test initially of, or the earlier test of the binding of Isaac episode, which is just an interesting idea that sometimes what seems to be the difficult problem is really somewhat easier than something else, which may seem more manageable, may seem just easier to overcome. Just an interesting idea here that we see in Rabbi Yonah. Chapter 24 
begins with Abraham, who he's getting old. He's well onto his years. He has everything. Says Rashi, he has a son. And the son, it's time for the son to get married. So how is Abraham going to find a spouse for Isaac? So he calls over his servant, the elder of his household, who controls all that is his. And he says to him, okay, it's time to make an oath. Place your hand under my thigh and swear in the name of Hashem, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, amongst whom I dwell. Abraham has a right-hand man. His name is Eliezer. And we've already met him a few parshas ago. And Eliezer is going to be given the responsibility of the mission to go find a spouse for Isaac. However, it's very important to Abraham that the woman is not a Canaanite woman. And therefore, he tells Eliezer, you have to make an oath. Place your hand on my thigh. Why the thigh? Because the thigh, Rashi tells us, is the mitzvah that Abraham had. Abraham received the commandment, the mitzvah, circumcision. And therefore, when someone swears, they swear on all that is holy, on a Torah scroll, on a pair of tefillin, something holy. What what did Abraham have that was holy? His one mitzvah that he had from God, and therefore he tells the servant, grab me by my thigh and swear that you're not going to take a woman for Isaac as a wife who is a Canaanite. Instead, go east, go to my homeland, travel to Mesopotamia, find a relative of mine who is going to be a suitable spouse for Isaac. And it's interesting the juxtaposition that we see over here. Abraham calls over his servant, the elder of his household, who controls all that is his Abraham gave the keys to Eliezer, the keys for everything. Everything that Abraham had in his estate, in his family, was controlled by his right-hand man, Eliezer. Clearly, Abraham trusts him. Yet, Abraham tells him, before I send you on this mission, you have to swear that you're not going to take a Canaanite woman for Isaac. Promising it's not enough. You got to swear. I think the lesson here that we see, or what we could definitely extract from Abraham, is his priorities. The material possessions that Abraham had, I'm sure they were important to him, but they were definitely not as important as the spiritual destiny of the nation that is going to be spawned from Isaac. And therefore, even though he trusts Eliezer with everything, in order for Abraham, to send him on the mission to find a spouse for Isaac, he has to swear, in addition, promising is not enough. So the servant responds, well, okay, you want me to go travel a thousand miles to go find a spouse for Isaac? Sure. Well, what if the woman says, I don't want to leave my hometown. I may find a fantastic candidate to marry Isaac, but maybe she doesn't want to come back here. Can I bring Isaac over there? So Abraham responds, don't take Isaac over there. God of heaven, Hashem, who took me from the house of my father, from the land of my birth, 
He will be there with you. He'll send his angel before you. You'll have success because God will help you. And you know what? In the event that the woman does not want to follow you, well, then you are freed from my oath. But one thing, do not take a spouse for my son Isaac from the Canaanite women. Your responsibility is do your mission. If it doesn't work out, okay, then you are freed from any responsibility. So the servant, he swears and he takes 10 camels with all the bounty of his masters and they travel to Aram Naharayim, to the city of Nahor, and they make the long trip and it's time he arrived in the city to go search for a suitable spouse for Isaac. How does Eliezer go about doing that? So he begins, verse 12, with praying. He says, Hashem, God of my master Abraham, may you so arrange it for me this day that you do kindness with my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. And the daughters of the townsmen come out to draw water. So he's standing by the well and he's anticipating all the girls, all the marriageable girls are going to be coming out to draw water from the well. And he wants to devise some sort of mechanism by which to filter the candidates in a way that he's able to find a woman, a girl, who is worthy of marrying into the family of Abraham and marrying Isaac. How are you going to find out who's a good candidate and who's not a good candidate? Let it be that the maiden to whom I shall say, please tip tip over your judge so I may drink. And she replies, drink, and I will even give water to your camels. She, you will have designated for your servant for Isaac. And may I know through her that you have done kindness with my master. Eliezer recuses himself for making any judgment call. He's trying to develop something that is objective, an objective standard to measure the character of the girl who is perhaps going to marry Isaac. The person, the girl that he asked for water and does not ask for anything else, and she's not only pleasant enough to offer some of her water for Eliezer to drink, But she also notices that he's traveling with this posse of 10 camels with a whole group of people with him. She'll also notice that and attend to those needs. Such a girl, someone who displays the same superlative kindness that is so present in Abraham's household, that's the right candidate to marry Isaac. And it's interesting. Had the girl only responded to what was mentioned explicitly, that he wanted water, but not noticed what else was happening in the situation, not noticed that the camels are there and they also need water, then that would prove that she's not a good candidate. Only someone who's not only able to perceive and to address the needs of the recipient, but is also able to sense innately the unstated needs of the recipient, only such a person is a good candidate to marry Isaac. 
And this is somewhat similar to what we saw with Abraham last week. Abraham had that double vision. He was able to see the situation from his perspective, but also able to understand what the recipient, what someone else was going through, and able to address their world, their needs, as if it was from their perspective. Such a girl, she's definitely worthy of joining this empire of kindness in the house of Abraham. That is Eliezer's prayer to God, and that is the test that he constructs. He finishes his prayer, and suddenly, Rebecca is coming out. She's the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor. So she she is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. She's the first cousin once removed of Isaac. We know now that she fulfills the first category that Abraham wants. She shouldn't be a Canaanite. She should be someone born from Abraham's family. The maiden, she's very beautiful. She's also a virgin, which Rashi tells us wasn't so common in that time, in that place in the world. She goes down to the well. She fills her jug and the servant notices something really special about her. He notices that it seems like the water is elevating itself and coming into her jug. She doesn't need to dip down into the well. It seems like some miracle is happening. So he runs over to her and says, could you please give me some water? And she responds, yeah, sure. Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave him to drink. Just like Abraham in last week's Parsha was doing his kindness always with alacrity, Rebecca quickly gives water to Eliezer. When she finished giving him the drink, she said, okay, now I will draw water even for your camels until they too have finished drinking. And quickly she's hurrying, she's emptying her jug into the trough and kept running to the well to draw water back and forth and back and forth until she was able to provide enough water for all the camels to drink. Eliezer is astonished and he's he's bursting within him. Did it work? Did the Almighty give him success? And right when the camels finish drinking, he runs over to her. He gives her jewelry, bracelets, a nose ring. And then he says, okay, what's your family situation? What's your pedigree? Can we stay by your house? And he starts investigating the questions that are necessary to determine the eligibility of this girl to marry Isaac. Rashi points out that he was so confident that he actually gave her the jewelry before he inquired as to who her family was. And this shows like a high level of faith and reliance upon God that he totally assumed that like Abraham told him that God's going to be with you. He's going to send an angel with you. He's going to guide you. He's going to hold your hand. It's going to it's going to be a success. And therefore, even before he verified that she was indeed from Abraham's family, he gave her the jewelry. Rebecca responds, I'm the daughter of Besuel, the son of Milcah, whom she born to Nahor. And yes, you can stay with us for not just one night, but for multiple nights. And Rashi points out that while Eliezer had asked for one night lodging, she responds 
with many nights, multiple nights of lodging. Again, she's addressing more than just the needs that he explicitly stated. She is also offering kindness more than she was asked for. So the man bowed low, thanked Hashem, and he said, Blessed is Hashem, God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and truth from my master. Now, I think there's a deep insight going on over here, or certainly something to ponder about. Certainly, if we were to make a list of what are the requirements of someone to marry Isaac, we would include kindness on that list. Definitely. After all, this is the house of Abraham. This is the house that Abraham built. The woman who's going to marry Isaac, Isaac is destined to continue the path that Abraham began, the movement that Abraham began to build eventually the Jewish nation and the movement that's going to save the world. It's a very important post. Who's going to be the wife of, of Isaac? And kindness, well, that's certainly one of the characteristics that personifies Abraham and Abraham's household, and that's very important. But there's something that seems to be missing. Abraham was not just unique in his kindness, he was unique in this, at the time, was a radical idea of monotheism. And the rest of the world, or at least the world that Abraham had not yet affected, they were still pagans, they were still idolaters. And even in this Aram Naharaim, in Abraham's hometown, even amongst his family, they too were idolaters. And in fact, we'll meet Laban in a little bit. And he's going to tell Eliezer, oh, don't worry, I cleaned out the house from all the idols. Certainly, you would imagine, part of the requirements to marry Isaac is to not be an idolater. How come when Eliezer is investigating the character, the eligibility, the suitability of a spouse for Isaac, he doesn't inquire about her faith, about her theology. Maybe she too is an idolater. Why was Eliezer not worried about that? Why did he not incorporate that into another test, asking her a question about ideology, about theology, about idols? There's a lot of questions. That he, he obviously was creative enough to come up with a test, come up with another test to inquire about her faith. It's an interesting question. I have maybe uh, two answers that I could propose. Number one, maybe, indeed, it doesn't matter. Why? Because people, to a certain degree, are malleable. We could change. However, maybe the lesson here is that character is far more entrenched than beliefs. The idea of faith, the idea of believing in one God, that is easier to access than actual character and superlative kindness that Rebecca displayed. If her character is up to par, says Eliezer, well, everything else will fall into place too. If, if she has that, she already did all the heavy lifting and everything else is easier. That's maybe one suggestion. Perhaps we could offer a second idea, or at least a skeletal structure of an idea, that like we said with Abraham last week, Abraham's kindness and Abraham's faith 
were intertwined. They, they, they were two reflections of his character. His faith was how he behaved between him and God. His kindness was how he behaved in him and his fellow man. But both of them were reflections of his character and of his perfection. Maybe when Rebecca is exhibiting the same Abrahamic kind, the same selflessness to be able to see what someone else needs without them telling you about that, when someone displays that degree of selflessness, it's only possible to do that if they indeed have faith. It's the same thing. The relationship that we have with God is a, is, is a quest for selflessness. The relationship that we're supposed to have with our fellow man is, again, a quest for selflessness. When someone's selfish, when someone only has themselves, well, then they don't have their fellow man, the kind of kindness, and they don't have God. They can't have faith. When someone shows that they're living for other people, they're obviously not selfish. They're not self-consumed. They're not boarded up in their own little cocoon of selfishness. And therefore, Eliezer, by finding out that she was not selfish, that she was living for others, clearly there's room in her heart for God too. So Rebecca runs and tells everyone what happened. And her brother Laban, who's of course going to be a very central character in Genesis, he sees the nose ring, he sees the bracelets, he sees the gold, and he quickly starts running. And he approaches the man and he says, Come, bless, oh blessed of Hashem, don't stand outside. I have cleared the house, I've cleared the house of idolatry, and I have place for the camels. This is something that we see with Laban. And we're going to see this in a more extended version in several weeks because Laban is going to be the father-in-law twice over of Isaac and Rebekah's son, Jacob. And one of the things that we find, one of, one, of, one of his characteristics, one of his character flaws is going to be a lust for money. And therefore, Rashi points out that his graciousness, welcoming the guest, all that was predicated on he saw the gold, he saw the nose ring, he saw the bracelets, he saw that, and right away he sprang into action and says, oh, this is someone rich, maybe I could get some of this goodies too. And this is going to be his character flaw that's going to accompany his treatment, not only of Eliezer over here, but also of Jacob in several weeks. So Eliezer joins, enters the house, unmuzzles the camel, and they give him food. And they say, okay, tell us, tell us what you have going over here. Give us your story. Give us your pitch on what happened. Eliezer responds, no, 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 I'm not going to eat anything before I finish speaking. It's important for me. I'm here on a mission. And one of the things that I have to do on my mission is first accomplish the mission and then worry about other things. I'm not going to eat before I finish what telling you what I have to, what I have to tell you. And he begins telling them everything that happened, starting from Abraham, I'm a servant of Abraham, and Abraham became very wealthy, and Sarah had a baby, the name was Isaac, and my master gave me this oath, don't take a woman from the Canaanites, travel to my land, travel to my family, travel to my homeland, find a wife from there. And I responded, well, maybe the, the woman won't, won't want to come. And he responded, well, if so, then you're absolved from my oath, but the Almighty will send an angel and you're going to succeed. He repeats the whole 
story almost verbatim. And then finally he tells them about his test and how he met Rebecca and how Rebecca actually just checked all the boxes. And then he found out that she was indeed the daughter of Basuel and she was related to the family. And finally he tells them, okay, everything seemed to work out. If she comes and she marries Isaac, she'll have great wealth. But of course, I can't force this upon you. Will you indeed send your daughter with me to go marry Isaac? So it's interesting that we get this whole recap of the story, even though it's possible to have told it to us in a shorter way, in a more truncated version. And Rashi later on is going to tell us that even the recountings of the servants of the forefathers are very precious. And even though this seems to be like a dialogue, a narrative of Eliezer, that we could have just said, hey, he repeated the whole story, it's still so precious, and therefore the Torah goes out of its way to retell it in full detail. Now, there's a very interesting, slight, almost imperceptible difference between what actually happened initially, and how Eliezer retold it to Rebecca's family when he recapped the story. And that is with respect to the conversation that he had with Abraham when he was concerned what will happen if the woman that he finds refuses or is not interested to come back with him to marry Isaac. And Rashi picks up on this, and the difference is only in one letter, the word ulai, which means perhaps, in the sentence, perhaps the woman won't want to come with me. That's what Eliezer told Abraham, perhaps. In the initial episode, when it actually happened, it said ulai with the vav, aleph vav lamed yud, ulai. Here, it's aleph Lamed Yud, the Vav is missing. And Rashi tells us something very fascinating. The word Ulai, when it's spelled this way, can also be read as Eli, meaning to me. And Rashi gives us another wrinkle in the story, another element in the story, that Eliezer himself had a daughter. And he was looking to find a good husband for his daughter. And he really wanted that his daughter would marry Isaac. But after all, Eliezer was a Canaanite. And Abraham told him, no, no, no. Noah cursed the Canaanites. You are cursed. I am blessed. God blessed me. Cursed and blessed don't go together. That's what Rashi tells us. A very fascinating thing. What it's telling us is a deep insight into human psychology. And that is, Eliezer, he's given an instruction by Abraham. And he is a trusted servant of Abraham. And he asks a seemingly innocuous question. He asks, well, what if the woman doesn't want to come back with me? Which, after all, if I told you, go travel a thousand miles away and just get a girl and have her agree to come back with you, it's not such an unreasonable question. That's what you and I would think. 
But here we're told that underneath the question lay a bias. And that bias was that he secretly wanted Isaac to marry his daughter. And therefore, when he asked, what do I do? Perhaps, Uli, maybe she won't want to return with me. Really what he was saying, he didn't know it at the time, but really what he was saying, Eli, to me, if the girl doesn't want to come, you know what? Isaac doesn't have any other options. He'll marry my daughter. So it's an interesting thing that Rashi is telling us, a very deep point. When Eliezer asked the question, perhaps the woman won't want to travel home with me. What do I do then? In his mind, that was a legitimate question to ask. Only later, only when he's retelling the story, only then did he realize that what was really instigating the question, it was really the ally to me. Only later on did he realize that the bias that he had to get Isaac as a son-in-law for himself, that was really motivating that question. It's an interesting idea with respect to the notion of cheshbon or nefesh, the notion of making an introspection. Sometimes, after an event happens, after a conversation happens, we only then do we realize what was really motivating. At the time, we may think that we're acting in good faith, but only later on do we realize that maybe there's something lined beneath an innocent question. So they have a proposal here now for Rebecca, this wonderful cousin of theirs, Isaac, seems like a great sterling candidate, very rich family, sounds wonderful. So Laban and Basul respond, yeah, listen, this matter stemmed from God. Mehashem Yatsahadavar. This is from God. We cannot possibly try to upend it here. Rebecca is before you. Take her and go. Let her be a wife for your master's son as Hashem had spoken. Even though these people were idolaters, even they couldn't deny that the Almighty was coordinating, orchestrating this relationship to happen. When Eliezer heard those words, he prostrated himself before God. He thanked God. He gives gifts to Rebecca and to her family. They eat, they drink, and they spend the night. The next day, everyone wakes up, and that's it. They're about to begin their return journey back to the land of Canaan, back to the land of Israel, back to Abraham. This time, the caravan of ten camels taking another passenger, Rebecca, back to marry Isaac. And Eliezer tells the family, send me to my master. And they get a little cold feet. Her brother and her mother said, no, 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 no. Let the maiden remain with us for a year, or maybe 10 months, and only then let her go. And Eliezer says, no, no, no. Don't delay. Now that Hashem has made my journey successful, send me and I will go to my master. It's like the guy, the salesman who finally makes the sale. And then the buyer has cold feet. And he said, no, 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 you can't delay, you can't, don't push it off. This is a terrible idea. And ultimately they agree to call Rebecca and ask her what she says. She has the last say. And it's really interesting if you compare what happened at the night and what happened in the morning. At night, you know, they were so inspired. What a story, incredible, so fortuitous. It's from God, there's no denying it. Take her tomorrow back 
to Abraham and back to Isaac. And then in the morning, they seem to have second thoughts about it. I don't know, maybe she should stay here for a little bit longer. Maybe there's a takeaway here that when someone's inspired, someone sees the hand of God, that's great. That's very powerful. But if they let that linger, if they sleep on it, you sleep on inspiration, you wake up in the morning, the inspiration isn't as hot, it isn't as piping as it was earlier, you start having doubts, maybe yes, I don't know, maybe no, you, there, there's a question. So Rebecca is called, she's going to make the final choice, and she says, I'm going to go. They escort her, they bless her, oh, our sister, may you become to be thousands of myriads, may your offspring inherit the gate of their foes. Indeed, that's a blessing that we still offer to brides today. And Rebecca arose with her maidens, they rode upon the camels, and they head back home. The servant took Rebecca and went. As they head back home, they meet Isaac. Isaac is gone to pray at Be'er L'chairo'i, and he's praying in the field. He raises his eyes, and he sees, behold, the camels are approaching. Rebecca sees Isaac. She falls off the camel. She's a little bit startled. And she asked the servant, she asked Eliezer, who is that man walking in the field towards us? And Eliezer responds, he's my master. She then took the veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac everything that he, that had happened. So this is somewhat interesting. Isaac is going to pray. And Rebecca sees him. And maybe he's amidst his prayer and she falls off the camel. Maybe if we merit to see righteous people, to see tzaddikim, we'll notice perhaps that they have a spiritual visage, a spiritual countenance that's somewhat unusual. When someone's soul is so bright and it's almost displayed on their face, it's it's unusual. They, they, their face is glowing. For Rebecca, she's never seen anything like that. And she was maybe a bit frightened, and maybe that's why she fell off the camel. Eliezer tells Isaac everything that had happened. Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. He married Rebecca. She became his wife, and he loved her, and thus was Isaac consoled after his mother. The chapter concludes this long saga. Eliezer travels halfway across the known world, finds a spouse for Isaac, manages to allow her family to sign off on it, brings her back to Isaac. He marries her, but first he takes her to the, he takes her to the tent of Sarah's mother. He marries her. He marries Rebecca. She becomes his wife. He loves her. And thus was Isaac consoled after his mother. Now, this is, this last verse is essentially a verse about the budding relationship of Isaac and Rebecca. And the verse talks about Sarah in two ways. Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. He married her. She became, he marries Rebecca. She became his wife and he loved her. And thus was Isaac consoled after his mother. It's somewhat unusual, somewhat strange that in the verse that's supposed to be describing a relationship between Isaac and Rebecca, it seems to mention Sarah 
Isaac's deceased mother twice. What's the meaning behind that? Says Rashi, Sarah's tent was a unique tent. There were ever-present miracles in her tent. When she would light candles before Shabbos, those candles would last an entire week until the following Shabbos. There was an ever-present cloud on top of Sarah's tent. There was blessing in her holiday. When Sarah died, those blessings, those miracles, went away with her. Isaac brings Rebekah into the tent of Sarah, his mother. That was essentially another test. What's going to happen when Rebekah enters Sarah's tent? Will she be on the same spiritual level to be able to restore those miracles that were present when Sarah was alive? And you know what? They did. So he married Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And thus was Isaac consoled after his mother. Isaac now has someone in his life that is on the same spiritual caliber as his mother, and that brought him consolation. Chapter 25 tells about the end of Abraham's life. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Rashi tells us that this is also Hagar. He has several other children with Keturah slash Hagar. And at the end of his life, he has to apportion his estate. So verse 5, Abraham gave all that is his to Isaac, but to the concubine children, meaning Ishmael and all these other children that were born to Keturah, Abraham gave them gifts. But he sent them away from Isaac, his son, while he was still alive eastward towards the lands of the east. Now, the, now these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he had lived a hundred years, 70 years, and five years. Abraham passed away at the age of 175. He expired. He died at a good old age, mature and content, and he was gathered to his people. Like Sarah at the beginning of the, por- of the Parsha, Abraham, too, filled all his years. Each one of his 175 years were lived to the fullest extent, just like Sarah maximized her 127 years in her life. We don't choose how many years the Almighty gives us to live on this world, but we do choose what to make of the opportunities that we were given. Abraham was given 175 years. He did a full job on them all. He maximized it. Sarah maximized her 127 years. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Sohar, the Chittite, and facing Mamre, that same field, that same cave where Abraham's wife was buried, Sarah, at the beginning of the parsha. Abraham was buried at the end of the parsha. Rashi points out that his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him, not his sons Ishmael and Isaac. Even though Ishmael was older, he yielded and allowed Isaac to go first. Says Rashi, quoted from the Talmud, this teaches us that Ishmael repented towards the end of his life. He recognized the primacy of Isaac. He allowed him to go before him 
And that indeed shows that Ishmael has his priorities aligned. He recognizes the role of Isaac. He submitted himself. He lowered himself. He humbled himself before him. And therefore, that's proof that he indeed repented. And the Parsha concludes by giving us the genealogy, the descendants of Ishmael. It lists all the children that Ishmael had. He lived 137 years and then he died. And we're told where his descendants, where his progeny, where they lived. Next week, we are not going to hear any more about Abraham or Ishmael. We're going to read about Isaac, his new wife, Rebecca, and they are going to be faced with long-term infertility until a pair of twins are going to be born.